many questions are difficult to answer, but probably the most difficult question is why does God allow suffering? Maybe you've heard it put this way. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question that almost everyone asks at some point in their life. I mean, if there is a God in heaven who's all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there so much heartache? If he's really in control, then why is there so much pain? And to be honest, there's no real easy answers to those questions. Theologians have struggled with the problem of pain for centuries. And here's what I've learned. It's easy to give superficial answers when someone else is suffering, when someone else is going through the pain, but when it's your loved one who's in an accident, and when it's your child who's in the hospital, when it's your job that's been eliminated, when it's your spouse that has passed away, well, those answers can feel pretty shallow. Pretty shallow, maybe even insulting. Because most of us think, if God is God, then I shouldn't have these financial problems, or my children wouldn't be buried before me, or my health would be strong. And we may not say those things out loud, but they represent some expectations of what we think an all-loving and all-powerful God should do for us. And then when the tough times come, we start to wonder, what kind of God is up there? One Jewish Holocaust survivor put it this way. He said, if this is the best that God can do, then maybe he should resign and let someone more competent take his place. And we may not say that out loud, but sometimes we feel it. I guess the most common question about suffering is why. And we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. Before we get into it, though, let's address whether God is really the person to blame for the pain we experience in life. I mean, is he really the one that we should be pointing our finger at? Because the Bible indicates that God's original plan for us when he created the world, when he made us, was for us to live in perfect harmony with him and with creation. It wasn't his will that people would suffer. Lamentations 3 verse 33 says, For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. And God really does want the utmost good for his people. So if that's true, if that is really the heart of God, then where does suffering, where does pain come from? First, some is the result of our own sin. Most of us have experienced that. The consequences of a poor decision or a mistake that we've made. So if you lie or steal, you might get fired from your job. You may lose a spouse. And if you're promiscuous, you may contract a disease or you may lose a spouse. And if you overeat or smoke or drink or don't take care of your body, then there's a consequence to that. There's suffering. And the same thing is true spiritually. God, in his love for us, has told us the best way to live. He's revealed that in his word. But when we choose to do things our way instead of his way, there's almost always some painful consequences. But still, I want to be clear about this. Most suffering is not the result of our own sin or God's discipline. Some is, but most isn't. John 9 is a good example of this. Jesus records an encounter of a man who uh, we read was blind from birth. And the disciples, when they see this man who's blind, they ask Jesus this question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And God didn't cause this to happen as some form of discipline, but God said, I'm going to use it now so that I will be glorified. And then he healed the man. So some suffering is the result of our sin. Here's another place that suffering comes from. Some suffering is the result of other people's sin. We've all experienced this. Some of you have been hurt by other people. Sometimes it's more physical. If you're mugged on the street, then you suffer from another person's sin. But your child might rebel, or your spouse be unfaithful or abusive, or your parents might divorce, and it breaks your heart, and it causes this pain in your life. And you hurt because of someone else's decision. Someone has estimated that 95% of the suffering in this world is the result of our own choices. Here's an example. Consider the famines in Africa. It's easy to look at all these people starving and ask, where is God in this? People are dying of starvation. How does he allow this to happen? Why doesn't God intervene here? But you know what? The truth of the matter is we produce enough food on this planet to give every man, woman, and child 3,000 calories a day, no problem. So is it really fair to blame God? It's probably more accurate to point the finger at our own selfishness and irresponsibility because God has given us the resources we need to take care of everyone if we would share them more freely. And so the truth is God has given us free will. And with your free will, you can look at your hand. And with this hand, you can choose to pick up a gun and shoot someone. Or with this hand, you can pick up a piece of bread and feed someone who's hungry. But if you choose with this hand to shoot someone, then is it really fair to say, why does God cause so much suffering? Why does God allow evil and pain? Some suffering is the result of satanic attack. We read this in Scripture. We looked at the story of Job last week. He suffered bankruptcy. He suffered the simultaneous death of 10 children. He suffered physical misery. It wasn't God's discipline. It wasn't other people's sin. It was Satan attacking him. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how he had this thorn in the flesh that he calls a messenger of Satan. Now listen, God permitted those things to happen, but there's a difference between his permitting it and his causing it. Most suffering is because we live in a fallen world. Romans 8, verse 22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so the problem of suffering goes all the way back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, it threw everything out of whack. And we understand this. You watch the news and there are droughts, there are floods, there are tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and viruses. There are Water is polluted, there is ground that's contaminated, and we see the consequences of living in a fallen world all around us. And the system is out of balance. And Paul here in Romans, he describes it as these birth pains that are kind of leading up into the return of Jesus. But until Jesus returns, that's the world we live in. 
And the Bible describes that in this world, the rain will fall on the just and the unjust. And that doesn't sit very well with us, but it's the truth. So the same knife that can be used to cut bread can also be used to stab someone or to cut my finger on accident. And the force of gravity that keeps me to this earth will not be suspended if I fall out of a tree. And tornadoes will hit churches, and they'll hit nightclubs. And cancer will strike adults, and it will strike innocent children. Most of the time, God is not causing those problems. But listen, he never promised us exemption from them either. And the truth is, very rarely does he come down and intervene in the laws of nature. I guess that's hard for us to understand, but Jesus was honest about this. He said, in this world, we will have tough times. He said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. And I guess it helps a little bit to understand where pain comes from. But the question is, where is God in all of this? Why doesn't he do something about it? There are a number of different ways that people have tried to answer this question throughout time. First, some people say that God is just powerless. Maybe that's it. Maybe God wants to help, but he lacks the power to do anything about it. This view was popularized by Rabbi Harold Kushner, who in his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, describes what it's like to watch his son Aaron die. He had contracted this rare disease that caused him to age prematurely, and he died in his teens. Kushner concluded that God cared, but he must not be able to do anything about it. He's just powerless. I guess that's an option, to say that the God who created the world and spoke it into existence is powerless to intervene in it, but I don't know. Here's another option. Some say that God is indifferent. That's another perspective, to say that God doesn't care. He has the power, but he's just not that good. Maybe that's it. Numerous religions buy into this. They hold this view. For example, deism teaches that God started it all, that he kind of got the universe going, and then he went off somewhere for a glass of tea. And it's hard for us to accept the fact that God could have the power, but not do anything about it. But if you remember from last week, that's how Job's wife felt. When Job was going through all of this pain and suffering, she said to Job, curse God and die. In other words, what she said is, Job, if there's a God up there, he's not a very good God, so just curse him and walk away. Some people believe that. Some people believe that God causes everything to happen, that he's the one we should blame for everything, and he just sits in heaven and he delights in torturing us. So why doesn't God intervene? Well, there's a place in Scripture where Job asked this question. He wants to know why God isn't stepping in and helping. And in Job chapter 1, verse 1, it describes Job as a man who was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so the Bible says that Job wasn't just good, Job was great. And yet, even though he lived in a way that pleased God, he lost his wealth, he lost his servants, he lost his children, 
and he lost his health. And after all this happens, Job finally asks God, why? Why is this happening to me? And I suppose he's speaking for a lot of people here. Speaking for the parent whose child has been diagnosed with a serious disorder. Speaking for a couple who for years have been trying to get pregnant. Maybe speaking for a wife who finds a note on the kitchen counter that says, I've left. It's over. Don't reach out to me. I guess for everyone who's ever asked the question why, Job asked God. But the answer God gives might not be what you expect. Here's how God answers Job. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. God is being sarcastic with Job, making a very clear point. Job, I know what you don't. I understand what you can't. And finally, Job is allowed to respond, and he replies back to God, and here's what he said. I will cover my mouth. I have said too much. And while there's a part of me that is comforted by the fact that God is so big that I can't fully understand his ways, there's another part of me that seems like that answer is a cop-out. It almost seems like he's uncaring. I want something I can understand to get me through the pain of this life. But the truth is, and this is just the truth, for the most part, answers just fall short. For the most part, they just don't help very much. We think that an answer to this question would help, but it's much more than an academic question. It's much more emotional than that. And if you've gone through suffering, you understand this. It's not something you debate, the problem of pain. You don't debate it around the kitchen table with friends and family. It's much deeper. It's more personal. And when you're going through it, I guess you understand that there's no answer that satisfies, and so what you really need is hope. And that's what God gives us. Perhaps the biggest mistake we can make in answering this question is to expect that answers will make the pain go away. I don't think answers make the pain hurt any less. Even solid, rational answers that make perfect sense can feel insulting when you're the one that's going through it. Parents, you'll identify with this. It is tough taking young kids to the doctor to get shots. I remember a couple years ago taking my youngest son to get shots, and he hates getting shots. I mean, what child likes it, right? But he was old enough now to know that a shot hurts. He can remember this, and so he knows when we get to the doctor's office, I don't even have to tell him that we're getting shots. This is already in the forefront of his mind. And it's difficult for me as a father because I know that he can't fully understand why we're doing this. He's too young. He's too immature to fully comprehend why his dad is going to allow him to get poked with needles. And even though I'm not doing it myself, he knows that I'm allowing this to happen. And so I found myself saying some things to him as we went through this. And I guess it started to get me wondering about what God would say to some of you when you're suffering. 
Because the first thing that I said to my son as a father is, I know how you feel. You are not alone. You are not alone. I, I tried to reassure him that, that I was going to be there for him, that, that I would hold his hand the entire time. Uh, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is Daniel 3, where we read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel 3, these three men refuse to bow down and worship the golden idol that has been set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. He set it up for everyone to bow down to, and these three men refused, and as a punishment, the king threw them into a great fiery furnace to be executed. But listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? He's looking into the furnace saying, weren't there three men in there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And his advisors replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And so we understand that God was with them when they needed him the most. In their most trying moments, he was by their side. And with his strength, you can get through what you don't think you can get through. God not only goes through the fire with you, but he keeps his hand on the thermostat. 1 Corinthians 13 says that he's not going to let you go through more than you can bear. So just know that when you're suffering, you are not alone. God is with you. Another thing I said to my son as he was getting ready to get these shots is, I know how you feel. I wanted him to know that I had experienced this type of pain before, and I understood what he was going through. And there's something that strengthens us when we talk to others who have gone through what we've gone through. And the Bible teaches us in Hebrews that Jesus has felt the pain of this life. And as a result, he's able to sympathize with us when we experience it ourselves. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so we can come to God with confidence asking for help because he knows how we feel. He has gone through the pain of this world. I remember several years ago, I assisted in the funeral of a 19-year-old young man who had died of a drug overdose. He had attended our college ministry a few times, but I didn't really know him very well. I went to meet with the family, and I sat alone in a room with his mother. She was a single mom who had just lost her only son. She was a committed Christian, but as you can imagine, she was very upset with God that all of this had happened. And in the moment, it's hard to know what to say, but I was trying to say something that would help. I was trying to explain to her that God knows how you feel, and God is with you. You are not alone, and when you hurt, he hurts. But in the middle of my explanation, through cheers and through frustration, she started a sentence, and here's what she started to say. She said, what does God know about? And then she stopped. And I don't know exactly what she was going to say, but I think she was going to say, what does God know about losing a son? But she didn't finish it, and we both sat there quiet for, for, for a while. God knows how you feel. Jesus has experienced the pain of this world. 
His family didn't understand him. His closest friends betrayed him and abandoned him. He was falsely accused and charged. He was unjustly sentenced to death. He was physically tortured and died a humiliating death on a cross. And so as his child, what I think your heavenly father would want to say to you is you are not alone. I know how you feel. Another thing I tried to tell my son is that pain has a purpose. I just wanted him to know that there was a reason why his dad was letting him go through all this because I knew he couldn't fully comprehend. But it just seemed to me that if he knew this wasn't some sort of morbid fun to watch me, to, for, for me to watch him go through all of this, and I don't think he understood the, the reasons why I explained them, but I do think it helped him to know that pain has its reasons. And one way God uses pain is for our good. He will make us more like Jesus Christ. He will not waste any pain that we have in this world. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. So we don't regret the pain in our life because we can be confident that God will somehow use it to make us more like Jesus. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then if you keep reading, verse 29 defines good as God conforming us into the likeness of his son. And God wants to work in your pain to make you more like Jesus. That just simply means that your pain is never in vain. He will always be working in you, even in the hard times, to produce in you a Christ-like maturity. I don't think we like it. It's not how we would want to be taught or prepared, but God as a father will allow us to go through some things because he knows it's for our own good. And so like a loving father who allows his child to get a painful vaccination, God will allow us to experience some pain. And I don't know, maybe God allows, I didn't say causes, but maybe God allows cancer to teach us the value of what is eternal. Maybe God allows unemployment to teach us faith. Maybe God allows a difficult boss to teach us self-control. Maybe God uses a crying baby to teach us patience. And I'm not saying that he causes all these things. I'm saying he does use them to work together for our good. And so we come out on the other side looking a little more like Jesus. God will not waste your hurt. Pain has its reasons. So if you can picture this, I'm in the doctor's office. I'm sitting on this little table, and my son is remembering what it's like to get these shots. He's dreading what's about to happen. And the doctor comes in very kindly, and she tells my little son, you can sit on your daddy's lap if you want to. Well, she didn't even get the words out, and he already scrambled up onto my lap. He was sitting on my lap, and he, he turned his head into my chest, and he had his arms wrapped around my neck. And as I watched him go through these shots, I was wondering how a child reacts to pain. And here's what I felt. I felt his hands wrap behind my neck, and he just squeezed as tightly as he could. He buried his head in my chest, he screamed, and then he started to cry. 
And as I have studied the problem of pain, I have read hundreds and hundreds of pages of theological explanations to suffering. And the rational side of me accepts these answers as good answers. But to be honest, I felt like my son's response was the best answer to the question of suffering. When you experience the pain and suffering of this life, just hang on to God and don't let go. And as we look at the pain we experience in this life, you can know that pain has its purposes. Well, there's one other thing that I said to my son, and here's what I said. The pain will soon be over. It will end. And while I was literally holding him down to get these shots, I said to him, when this is over, you can get some ice cream. And out of everything that I said, this seemed to have the biggest impact, that there was something to look forward to. And the hope of something better in the future made a big difference. Tammy Kramer was the chief of an outpatient AIDS clinic in Los Angeles, and she tells the story of watching a young man come into this AIDS clinic to receive his morning dose of medication. He walked in in tired silence and sat on the high clinic stool as he waited for the doctor to come in. The doctor that day was a new doctor. He walked in, he poked a needle in this young man's arm, never looked at him in the face, but he said the words, you're aware, aren't you, that you're not long for this world? a year at most, and then he walked out of the room. And the patient, as he left the clinic, he stopped at Tammy's desk, and his face was twisted with pain, and in anger he said, that jerk took my hope away. And here's what Tammy Kramer said. Maybe he did. Maybe it's time to find another one. Maybe it's time to find another hope. That's the real question, I think. Is there hope? Romans 5.8 speaks of a hope that doesn't disappoint. Romans 8.18, Paul, who experienced incredible hardship, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And we can endure a lot if we know that there will be a happy ending. And we can face a lot of hard times if we know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, if we know that there is a reward for being faithful in times of testing. Let's imagine for a moment that you're afraid of heights, okay? For some of you, you don't have to imagine. That is reality. But let's say that you're afraid of heights, and I offer you $10 to parachute out of a plane. Now, for $10, I'm guessing none of you would agree to do that. But let's say I upped it, and I said, I will offer you $1,000 if you will parachute, if you will jump out of this plane. Now, for $1,000, maybe a few of you would, but, but still, most of you wouldn't. But what if I said, I will give you a million dollars to parachute out of the plane? My guess is almost all of you would agree to that. Why? Because eventually, the reward is worth the pain. What you're going through and what you're going to get at the end makes it bearable to do something that is absolutely miserable in the present. And there is a reason to hold on. Paul says there is a glory that awaits us in the end, and that is the perspective of heaven. And that's the best way I know how to answer this question. It's not to deny the pain of this life. You may go through 87 years of pain on this planet, but here's what I'm saying. 
in heaven after 572,822,675 years of perfect bliss in the presence of God, all of these bad days on earth will feel like nothing more than a bad hair day. I really think that's true. And you'll look back and you'll say, maybe it was tough for 87 years, but after hundreds of millions and millions of years in heaven, you will have the right perspective. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. As we finish up, I want to take you to the last book of the Bible. It's Revelation. And in this book, John describes the heaven that he sees. And then he wants to tell the people who were suffering and being persecuted, he wants to tell them what heaven is like to give them hope. In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, here's what he says. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. John helps us picture heaven by telling us what will not be there. There'll be no more suffering and no more pain. There'll be no more crying and no more death. Can you imagine what that'll be like? No more anxious waiting rooms. No more tables for one. No more tear-stained divorce papers. No more motionless ultrasounds. No more tiny caskets. And I don't know, but my guess is in heaven, the most difficult question to answer will no longer be, why do bad things happen to good people? But in light of God's glory and grace in our lives, maybe the most difficult question for us to answer in heaven is why do good things happen to bad people? And we will have millions and millions of years to celebrate God's goodness, to celebrate the life he wanted us to have here on earth originally. Until that day we hold on. We wrap our arms around his necks and we squeeze. And we look forward to eternity in heaven with God our Father. That is the hope that we have. Let's pray. God, you have told us that in this world we will face trouble, that we will experience suffering, that we will experience pain. And God, we don't like it. Oftentimes we wonder why. But God, you have promised that you are with us, that we are not alone. You know how we feel, that pain has purpose. And God, you have told us that the pain that we experience, the suffering that we endure here on earth will be over soon. You have given us the hope of heaven that for all eternity we will be in perfect bliss with you. And there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more death. That you are making all things new. And so God, no matter what it is we're going through, God, and there are people here who have gone through so much. You have promised us that there is good coming, that you are making all things new, and we have hope. God, above all, would you help us to hold on to hope, the hope that we have through Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins. Three days later, you rose him from the grave, and he is alive today, and our hope is in Jesus Christ. 
God, if there is any person here today who does not know that hope, I pray that today would be the day that they say, yes, I need hope in my life. I need a hope that goes beyond the grave. I need hope for all eternity. I pray that today would be the day they find it in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And anybody who's struggling, anybody who's suffering, God, would, would they know that you are with them, that you care, that you know how they feel, and that the suffering will not last forever. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.